Welcome to the Healthy Returns Podcast, where I sit down with founders, investors, and executives innovating in health tech, fitness and wellness, and human performance. My guest today is Jennifer Newell, founder of Betty's Co. Betty's is a women's health company serving young women by providing gynecology, mental health, and wellness visits through mobile clinics and virtual care. The current narrative around women's health is extremely focused on pregnancy. So when patients age out of pediatrics at just age 18, most wait to see an OBGYN for at least another three years or until they're sexually active. Betty's addresses this gap in care by focusing on Gen Z patients who are unsure of how to navigate the traditional women's healthcare system. In today's episode, we discuss misconceptions about women's health, raising capital as a first-time founder, and how the pandemic impacted Betty's go-to-market strategy. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining Healthy Returns. Yeah, thanks, Nolan. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this conversation for a lot of reasons. I mean, you're a first-time founder, you're building a women's health company, um, a space that's been both neglected and misunderstood by so many people for so long and still to this day that's that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yet four years after founding Betty's, uh, you're, you're still here. So we're going to talk about all that. But before we get into it, um, could you please introduce yourself and what you built at Betty's? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Jennifer Newell. I'm the founder and CEO of Betty's Co. Um, And we just call it Betty's. Uh, And Betty's is a women's healthcare company that is focused on serving women and females assigned at birth from period until pregnancy planning. And really, this is a, a group that is largely overlooked by healthcare. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we have redesigned the healthcare system for Betty, specifically for Gen Z females. So everything that we do is really catered to them as our customer from where we provide care, which is a hybrid virtual plus in-person in a mobile clinic that we take all over our market, including college campuses. So from that to the technology that we use to the types of care we provide, which are gynecology, mental health, and wellness. So we integrate that care and we're just really focused on being that go-to women's health resource and provider for younger women. That mobile clinic model is super fascinating. Um, okay. I know Gen Z, even millennials, they're interacting with healthcare in so many different ways these days, whether it be mm-hmm. virtual or in, you know, another setting. Like I, I, I'd never even heard of like a mobile clinic before. So that's, that's really exciting. You know, Gen Z is so interesting and um, I think they really have a lot of misunderstandings about what they want from healthcare. And so what we have found is that first and foremost, Gen Z wants in-person care. Mm -hmm. We've had so many instances, and this is both kind of third-party research has proven this, plus our own experience in the market, that as a first interaction or a primary point of interaction with a provider, you know, Gen Z really wants to have that in-person connection. And it makes sense, right? So many have lived their lives virtually for the past four or five years. And so they want to get out and be out in locations. Some don't have the privacy in a virtual, you know, setting where maybe they have roommates, maybe they live in a college dorm, you know, so privacy is is a big deal. Um, So we found that they really want in-person care. The second factor of kind of our locations is our demographic doesn't know uh, when to get care, what kind of care they need, or where to go. And so we work hard on really making sure that our customers understand 
what the recommendations are, why they might need to see a gynecologist, when they need to start seeing a gynecologist and engaging with a healthcare provider. Um, But to do that, we have to be in front of them, right? So our whole goal is to be the most present and convenient option for care on the market, because we really do a lot of work to pull them in. And our locations, our physical locations allow us to do that. So we take that mobile clinic to the places where, you know, our customers are really aggregating so that we can be in front of them and we make, you know, the aesthetic really appealing so that they'll be encouraged or curious enough to come in and know that, you know, we're a place that's going to serve them because it looks and feels like a place that's inviting to them specifically. So those are some interesting things about Gen Z, you know, and and how we're serving them at this stage of their life. Mm -hmm. And we say Gen Z because, you know, we're focused on this life stage of from period until pregnancy planning is really needed, right? Fertility care, obstetrical care. And right now that's Gen Z, you know, and in a few years it's going to be Gen Alpha, but, but what do females need in this particular stage of their life? What about the traditional healthcare system, specifically women's health is so severely underserving that current population right now? Is there, is there just a gap in knowledge? Is there a gap in what the actual focus is on? So yes. And yes, the first is the message, the messaging around women's healthcare and the way that the legacy structure of women's healthcare is really focused on pregnancy. And so what women hear is this message of you don't really need women's health care unless you're trying to prevent, achieve, or manage a pregnancy. And that's kind of it, right? And so for many women and females, they will go through pregnancy at some stage of their life. And then that is a forcing function to really engage with women's health care. And that can kind of carry them through, you know, later in life, which has needs and issues that we can discuss later. But what that message does for younger women is it says, well, you don't need health care. You don't need this type of care unless you're sexually active. That leads to all sorts of other stigmas and, and, you know, misconceptions for parents, for even other providers, you know, pediatric providers and primary care providers around when do you really need to start seeing someone that's going to specialize in the female reproductive system? Well, the, the fact is that the average age for that female reproductive system to activate, which is with the menstrual cycle and the period, is at 12. And so ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, recommends a first visit between the ages of 13 and 15. And so that visit rarely happens. And one of the big disconnects is that, you know, pediatricians who oversee the care of minors, you know, pediatricians operate under separate guidelines. So they don't follow ACOG's guidelines. They follow their guidelines, which are to refer out to gynecology at the age of 21, unless they identify some type of issue where a specialist is needed. So you have this disconnect, right? But if pediatricians are referring out at the age of 21, well, most patients age out of pediatrics by the age of 18. So then you have a, at a minimum a three-year care gap. And in this three-year care gap, you know, so often you have first sexual experiences or they're becoming sexually active for the first time. You have underlying conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. You know, they're really starting to experience those symptoms in their late teens and early 20s or endometriosis, right? That's when they're going to start presenting symptoms. And so, again, at a minimum, they have a care gap of three years where they're maybe symptomatic or having these lifestyle changes and they don't get care. And that's assuming they get care at 21, which many don't. Many wait until they're, you know, in their later 20s because they might not be sexually active or they not, might not be thinking about pregnancy. And so they just don't go. It's super smart, first of all, that Betty's meets their patients where they are and at so many college campuses. Now, with that mobile care clinic model, I know that continuity of care is something that's really important for positive health outcomes. So mm-hmm. are patients seeing the same providers and 
Number two, how often are they engaging with these mobile clinics? Yeah, great question. So the way that our clinical structure was designed was to really focus on the care team, right? And so that's become a pretty popular model. So we have continuity of care that is managed by our care coordinator, who is assigned to the clinical team, right? The communication that our clinical team has with each other so that if, you know, a patient sees one provider and then a different provider, because that other provider might have availability that works better for that patient's schedule, um, then our team is getting together and they're talking about those patients on a regular basis that's monitored and managed by the care coordinator. Then we also have some different kind of hierarchical items that make it better for our clinical team to stay connected on patients. And so one of them is our lead clinician role um, and then our medical director role. So we're really trying to focus on all of our providers, both working at the top of their license, because that's going to be better for like more cost-effective care. Um, so advanced practicing nurses, uh, physician assistants, right, that, that level. And then in terms of how that translates over to the patient, the patient gets a consistent Betty's experience. So on the back end, we have our clinical team that has developed all of our custom templates, all of our standard operating procedures and clinical guidelines that we have customized and tailored to be specific to, you know, women in this phase of life. And so even if a patient is getting, um, you know, maybe they're coming in for an annual visit and then six months later they come in because they have a problem. Maybe they're having, you know, some issues with bleeding or they have a UTI or something like that. And they see a different provider they're going to get a consistent Betty's experience that really feels tailored to them because we have all of, we've done all of this additional work to make sure we have extra training, extra materials and uh, for our providers to be able to deliver that experience. So yeah, continuity of care is really important, but what we're trying to do is connect that patient to the brands and have a branded experience, but make sure that from a clinical perspective, all of the providers really know what is happening with the various patients that they've seen. I love that last thing you said about branding, because I mean, number one, I'm Gen Z and I mean, anyone in my age demographic or even a little bit older, we're on social media so much nowadays. Um, we're, we try to tie ourselves to all these different brands in order to feel parts of different communities and traditional healthcare. I mean, even for me, I'm not engaging with women's health, but just general healthcare. It's still number one, so intimidating to try to navigate everything on my own. And when I'm sick, the last place I want to be is like a hospital or a doctor's office. It seems like what you and your team are doing at Betty's is by tying the brand to the actual clinical value that you're adding, it's creating a setting that patients actually want to be in. You nailed it. That is exactly what we're trying to do. The best reviews that we get, you know, when we send out our patient satisfaction survey and we get the, the responses, when someone writes in the comments, I can't wait for my next visit or I can't wait to come back, that's unheard of in gynecology. Like women surveyed rank going to the dentist as more enjoyable than going to the gynecologist. So for us to like, and that's our benchmark is I want to come back. And so it just, if we can turn gynecology into a fun experience for younger women, then that's really going to change this entire narrative around women's healthcare being stigmatized and kind of really leaving out demographics of, of women and females. I want to shift the conversation a little bit now to uh, your personal story and how it was building a company for the first time. Being from San Antonio, what's the startup ecosystem like there, especially as a first-time founder and 
you know, was, was fundraising challenging and what resources were there that helped you along your way? My professional background is in healthcare. I stumbled into healthcare right out of college about a year after I graduated and worked for a consulting firm um, that largely specialized in managing large physician groups, right? Health system owned medical groups. And then my career was always in consulting and always kind of at this intersection relationship between health systems and hospitals and physicians. So I worked for a company called the advisory board for about 10 years. I was running product marketing for the consulting division. And, you know, I, I started to look out at the market and found myself kind of frustrated with the conversation on women's health care. That's my professional experience. And so when I decided, you know what, I want to, I want to create a place that's going to be unique to young women so that women have different experiences than I did when I was a teenager starting in, in women's health as a patient. And so I felt like, okay. I have the professional network. I am surrounded by the foremost experts in building medical groups and operating medical groups. So that felt really good. I also felt like, okay, I've got this skill set here on how to really appeal to this demographic, the marketing piece, the branding piece. That was a lot of my own personal experience that I brought into. So when it came to, you know, what's this business model for Betty's? What are all of the components of how this business should operate and what the structure should be? And how do I work with legal and how do I work with accounting and do all of that? I felt so good about that. It's like, great. Okay. I can really do this. And that gave me some confidence to really think I could go out and start this business. The biggest learning curve that I had was how to fund this business. Is this going to be funded like a small business? Is it going to be funded like a startup? And those are very different. And I didn't understand that difference immediately. Is this going to be something where, to your point, what kind of network and resources are available to me? Because those are also different. So I will say that San Antonio has amazing resources if you are starting a small business. You know, we have the Small Business Development Center here that has a ton of free resources. San Antonio has the most uh, women-owned small businesses in the country, which makes a lot of sense given we're a military city. We do a lot of federal contracting here and, and that's a, a category that's important for that work. But yeah, I felt like, okay, we can go this route, but the startup resources, right? Accessing venture capital, accessing angel investors, knowing how to pitch, doing boot camps and accelerators. There were really only, or was only really one group kind of doing that work. And luckily I had some ends with it. It's a group called Geekdom. You know, I'm always touting them when I can. So I at least felt like, you know what, I've got a place I can go if I have questions. Since then, in the last four years, you know, the ecosystem here for startups has expanded um, and it's gotten more mature. Now we're not as mature as New York, Boston, Bay Area. I mean, even Atlanta, and Austin and Dallas and Houston are a little bit more mature. San Antonio is catching up and they're doing some cool work, but that was the hardest part was how do I fund this business? And then, you know, this pivot of like, okay, well, we're a startup. We want fast growth. You know, we expect to have an exit. We expect a big buyout because that's how we want to build this brand. And we see that opportunity there. So yeah, going the startup route, learning how to do, uh, how to fundraise, how to engage with the venture capital environment was a big learning curve. I spent about six months kind of focused and dedicated there really early on before really launching Betty's and then made some pivots in how we were thinking about getting funded. But that was the hardest part. We ended up getting there, but from a, the perspective of someone who was corporate and healthcare, you know, again, all of the business components, great. Like learning how to be a startup, yeah. it's just a completely different world. Given that Betty's is 
I feel like so mission driven. Did you go to traditional VCs? Did you go to the bank? Did you go to, uh, and the reason I brought up the mission was, did you go to impact funds that may be more incentivized and um, maybe more aligned with, with what you're trying to do? Yeah. So the first route that we took, and, and, and again, as a first time founder, at least for me, what I found is I would talk to a few people who were mentors who had experience, get what information I could use that to make a decision and then go from there. And so um, without having the past experience and access to, you know, 15 to 20 mentors in the startup space, I feel like, you know, my exposure was still pretty limited when making these decisions. Um, But I think it was right for us. So I kept talking to people as we were thinking about, okay, how do we get funding? And I kept hearing proof of concept. You've got to get to proof of concept before you can even think about going out to venture capital because they're not going to touch you at the ideation stage. I was like, okay, well, we need capital to get to proof of concept because we have a physical unit and we have clinicians who want to make money. So I did go to the banks first. And luckily we were able to qualify for an SBA loan which is really great. That's a great way to get started. Um, It puts pressure on a business to have revenue early and to get to profitability as soon as possible to be able to pay on those notes, which we're a services company and and, we could do. So it seemed like a really good fit and I'm happy we went that direction to begin with. Um, So we really didn't start raising. Now that said, that's also very hard. We went to seven banks, right? Over the course of COVID, the SBA had closed all of um, their funding for startup loans through SBA programs to cover the PPP during COVID. It was a whole thing. So that's a whole whole separate thing. But um, for venture capital, we started raising our kind of first uh, round of funding in June of 2022. And I've talked to a lot of great firms. You know, there are a lot of firms out there doing specific stuff in women's healthcare. You mentioned impact firms, right? Who do we go to? Well, I don't know if you knew this, but summer of last year was really difficult for venture. And that was when everything started to kind of the downward, the downward slope in terms of what they were investing in. So our traction metrics weren't quite what venture capital wanted to see to be able to kind of finalize a deal, right? So we've been really trying to be really, really scrappy with how we raise money. I found that a lot of impact firms have fantastic missions. I think what they're doing is absolutely incredible. I think the mix of the moment in time when we were fundraising and the pressure placed on them did not create a lot of alignment. So while we've talked to a lot of impact venture groups, we haven't seen a lot of success there. I also see many that have a model of wanting to take the tech approach and really think about non-physical environments. You know, what is the type of technology that can fit within our mission um, that we feel comfortable funding, but from a returns perspective, they're modeling it after a technology company. And we're a health tech, but also we have the physical presence. So we've actually found more success with groups that really know healthcare services. And at the end of the day, those are the people that have been the most interested in us and have really been able to say, okay, this is a great idea. We've got a niche market. We are revenue generating now. We have really good traction and they understand what our growth trajectory and our our growth strategy really is. So I I do think the lesson there for me and maybe for other founders is as much as you think you might fit into an investment thesis at another venture capital firm, if you don't check all of their boxes, then it's likely not going to move forward. And that's okay because it just saves you time. 
So I've talked to a lot of people, we really fit square in their investment thesis, but again, they want a technology or maybe all of their portfolio companies or, you know, CPG companies, and, you know, they want to get into healthcare, but because we are a healthcare services provider, it's just not going to be a great fit. And they're going to say no, at least at our stage. You brought up COVID. Now, I, I understand that the original plan for Betty's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the original plan was to actually create these brick and mortar locations. Were the mobile care clinics already part of that idea, or was that kind of a response and a pivot from, wow, COVID happened um, and COVID's happening? Like, we need to change our business model. We need to change it fast. A little bit of both. So, we've always planned to do mobile clinics. The goal there was always to have a type of vehicle that could be used both for marketing and branding and for clinical services. So some people hear mobile and they think, okay, this allows you to go into a rural area and really serve a rural community. And while we can do that to a certain extent, that's not a big part of our strategy. It really was the awareness piece that a mobile clinic would bring. But that was a later stage. We were planning brick and mortar before COVID and a decent footprint brick and mortar type of location. And so when COVID happened, you know, we were, I think, nine months into having a couple of angel investors, having banks lined up through SBA, you know, that really started to understand what we were doing. And we were, you know, very close, I would say probably about 60 days out from closing all of those deals and starting the build out of the brick and mortar. When COVID happened and the SBA pulled all of their funding, to go toward the PPP, right? That just completely eliminated that option. And so I kind of thought through it and, you know, stuck with our plan for maybe about two or three months. And then by midsummer of 2020, it really was a, we've got to get back to the drawing board. You know, my husband and I were on a road trip. We went to visit, we went to visit family and then we we're on a road trip for 12 hours. And so we're just in the car and we're talking and we're we're like, we've got to get something to market faster. We also have to get something that is going to be, again, the goal is proof of concept and the goal is getting debt funded. So what can we do? And it was actually his idea. Let's do mobile first. And so then we we pivoted because of the financial aspect of being able to go to market and get something up and running and then have something that was going to be more suitable for the bank because the mobile clinic is then an asset. And so the banks like that. So we were actually able to close a bank deal with what we had bootstrapped. So I bootstrapped from that point until June of the next year. So from this moment, it took another 11 months to bootstrap and get to the point where we were actually able to close on that. And we did, and we were able to see virtual patients virtually, you know, within a month. So lots of bootstrapping really, really went into developing the technology and establishing partnerships. But the mobile clinic was a bit of a pivot um, in response to covid also part of the plan because we do still have plans for brick and mortar. Now our brick and mortar strategy has changed because of what we've learned with the mobile clinic and how we've learned the market is really responding to Betty's. Um, so we do have plans for brick and mortar. And then our plan for the mobile clinic is that that is used really for partnerships. So when a college wants to bring us on campus, when an employer or community organization wants to take us to a specific location to provide access, you know, we're going to use the mobile units to do that. And that will be the vehicle through which we deliver care. It seems like it really helped that the mobile clinics were already in the back of your minds anyway. It's like how yeah. this can be part of our our entire uh, service platform, which is great. Yeah. And I think one of the hardest decisions during that time was how 
financially at risk? Am I willing to go personally? Luckily, I'm, you know, in a, was in a dual income household for, you know, a long time. I have a partner who brings home a paycheck. And so that's helpful. But I think a lot of founders, I hope founders, when they're getting started, I want them to realize financial risk, not just in, you know, spending years of not making any income, but also, you know, for us, it was, well, because of the business model and we're going this route with the SBA, we had, when we say we had to make the decision to bootstrap, it was, okay, are we personally going to spend, you know, $25,000 on this, you know, aspect of the business? And then another $25,000 on this aspect of the business, right? There were some big financial decisions that we had to make. And so we were, we were a very classic story of, okay, how do we do this? Do we pull together credit cards? Is this something that's going to be able to contribute toward the capital that we needed to have to secure a bank loan? There's a lot of personal financial decisions that went into that, into that phase of the business that I think founders really early on, I just want them to understand. So if they can position themselves financially to be able to withstand not only months of uncertainty, but continued financial risk. Like my name is personally on our debt for Betty's, right? We are, we are completely at risk for this. It's a really important thing to consider and to plan in the ideation phase even. I want to go back to the care clinic. What was it like hiring that first provider care team? And what what was, like, how did you sell the concept of Betty's to them, right? They're not investors. They're yeah. people that are going to work. And what was the, what was the response? Oh my gosh, selling Betty's to providers in this space is the easiest thing, okay. <laughs> right? Particularly because we're working with nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So the first clinical hire obviously was our medical director, Dr. Jillian Lopiano, board certified OBGYN. She's incredible. And so she and I together hired the first clinician who was going to be working in the clinic. Dr. Mm-hmm. Lopiano doesn't work. She sometimes works in the clinic. But for that first provider, and we're, we're particular about who we hire, but we actually got a lot of interest just because the way that we're approaching care is a way that aligns with the priorities and um, the style that providers want, right? We have 40 minute visits with our patients. Our technology gives them information upfront about that patient. So they know what they're walking into. We have the care team approach. So no one's working on an Island or feels isolated in their decision-making around patient care. So for all of those reasons, and because we have this group of uh, patients that really needs a lot of education. So they get to spend a lot of time talking about what they're passionate about, which is women's healthcare. For all of those reasons, it's really appealing. Now, the first question we get from our providers is always, so do I have to drive the mobile clinic? Who drives it? Right? Because they're so worried they're going to have to get, you know, their CDL or something. And for us, our mobile clinic is different. It's not something that they drive. We have a, a truck that pulls it. We park it at a location for a minimum of 24 hours. There's a little bit about our mobile clinic operation that's different than many other mobile units out there. But yeah, it is really funny when they ask that question of oh, who's going to drive it. It's like, don't worry, we're not going to ask that of you. So as long as they feel like, okay, I know where I'm going and you know we've got the logistics down of where they're going to be working that day, what, what area, they've actually started to really enjoy going to different locations because it exposes them to different parts of the community where they live. So it's, yeah, it's all around been a really good thing. At least that's the feedback we get from our providers. I started the conversation with um, kind of explaining why your story is so amazing, why that is so amazing, because women's health is misunderstood and neglected by a lot of people, specifically 
the 99% of investors and venture capitalists who are men. Could you help that population understand the market that you're serving and exactly how big it is? Because yeah. um, just upon hearing it first, right, you have an age demographic of 15 to 24, 30 years old. And once they're gone from that age, then they move on into the rest of women's healthcare system. They're not, they're not lifetime customers. So how big is that market exactly? Yeah. And thanks for asking this question too. So Betty's clinically conserve any woman or uh, person assigned female at birth between the ages of 13 and 45. That's our clinical range. Now our target market who we're really selling to um, is the age range of 15 to 24, right? 13 to 30 on a, on a, slightly larger scale, but 15 to 24, there are 21 million women across the U S between the ages of 15 and 24. And this is a constant, we have a constant influx of people aging into that demographic and then aging out of that demographic. And it's pretty consistent at about 7% of the population of any given market is in that age range. Now, from a perspective of clinical services alone, right? Clinical services alone for that 21 million young women is $19 billion. So if Betty's was able to capture that entire market, not including the other age ranges of right 13 and 14, and then, you know, 25 to 45, you know, that's $19 billion. Okay. And so um, there's a huge opportunity out there. And the way that we've designed Betty's is to be profitable. Like profitability is very important in healthcare and there are ways that it can be achieved. And there are things that make it a little bit more difficult with today's payment model. So for us, we are not just looking at the clinical services though, right? That $19 million. We're also looking at getting into product and retail revenue specifically with our in-person locations in terms of retail appetite. But so that's a revenue stream. Our partnerships to have the mobile clinic deployed at colleges, universities, employers, you know, that's another revenue stream. So for us, it's really, how do we, you know, diversify and really create a sticky customer experience that's going to increase our profitability so that we can grow, so that we can better serve the population and so that we can keep the cost of care down, right? There's, there's a lot that goes into that, but yeah, so $19 billion market nationwide. The market's huge and it's, shocking based on those numbers that yeah. are more funding being put into women's health companies. And Nolan, here's the thing that's crazy to me. When I started Betty's, and it's it's true today, I started ideating Betty's in twenty seven end of 2016, early 2017. The only nationally branded women's health company is Planned Parenthood. So we're friendly competitors with Planned Parenthood. I think they do a lot of great services, um, but they are the only nationally branded women's health company. And so specifically targeting our demographic too. So there's nobody out there that's doing this. And that's the question I get all of the time, particularly when we first started investors, especially male investors would look at me and they would just say like, well, I mean, isn't this already being done? Who's already doing this? And I would just look at them and say, absolutely no one, no one is doing this work. And so um, there are a couple of competitors emerging in this space, but they have slightly different uh, their models and specialties compared to us. But yeah, so there's nobody out there doing this. Planned Parenthood is the only one that's in this space, the only player, and it's a huge market. Well, I, I know we're coming up on time here, so um, I just wanted to leave you with this final question. What are the next plans for Betty's and what's been the most rewarding experience that, that you've had? What's next for Betty's near term is we are really focusing on establishing and maximizing our partnerships. So really maturing our partnership model, particularly with colleges and universities, 
and then also community organizations. That way, as we go into new markets and we scale, that can be kind of the driver for what markets we enter into. So I get a lot of questions about scalability because we're an in-person provider and that makes sense. So we just really want to make sure we have all of our I's dotted and T's crossed as we think about how to scale Betty's. And so we're focused on partnerships now. Um, and then we're going to go out and raise again toward the end of Q2 next year. That way we can start to grow and expand into Austin and create this kind of, I just like to call it a supermarket between Austin and San Antonio because we're in such close proximity. And then that will be the blueprint for how we go into other markets throughout really the Southeast, which is where we're focused, the South and Southeast. So that's near-term Betty's plans. We're very excited about it. We're launching a new partnership with the Community Health Plan in January. So we've got some big plans for those partnerships. In terms of what has been most rewarding, if I need a little hit of endorphins, which I do from time to time, get a little down in the founder space, I go to our patient reviews and I read those and I see all of the comments just about how our patients feel so safe and comfortable. And for many of them, it's their very first visit. And they just rave about how they feel heard and they feel cared for through the type of care that we're providing at Betty's. And you know, you mentioned earlier we're a mission-driven company, and our mission really is normalizing women's healthcare by creating a remarkable experience for our customers. And so when I know that they're having that experience that makes them want to come back makes them feel like they can prioritize their health care and not feel judged or shamed for anything associated with their female reproductive system and their health care needs. Um, I know we're doing the right work. So we've, we've gotten a couple of specific comments that I really love. One of them is about the mobile clinic itself, just saying how the model itself of having um, just two people that are working for Betty's that are in the unit and you go in there and you just feel immediately safe and comfortable. And those are really important words in women's healthcare, safe and comfortable. While uh, preparing for this conversation, I saw that, and you can, you can fact check this, but Betty's has a 93 NPS. I think it's a 91 now. Okay. Okay. That's still, I mean, that's still, that's insane. (laughs) Yeah. No, I know. It makes me so excited to know that. Now, you know, I'll get some skeptics out there that want to understand, well, how many people have responded because we have a low in, but our in right now is I think 166. We've had 166 people kind of rate us. And yeah, we still have a really high NPS. I think we have five stars on Google now. Google our Google reviews are, are five stars, which again, in healthcare, that's yeah. just unheard of. Yeah. Absolutely unheard of. Before you go, if you could just shout out Betty's socials, your individ- your personal socials, and how people can continue to support your mission and how they can follow the work that, that you guys are doing. Yeah. Um, so our website is just bettysco.com, B-E-T-T-Y-S-C-O. Our Instagram handle is the same, just at bettysco. I think our Facebook handle is Betty's Health Co. Um, Instagram is the primary place. So we do a ton of content on Instagram, particularly around educating young women on various healthcare topics. So I would start there. We do have a TikTok. It's also Betty's Co., if I remember correctly. Um, And then our app too. Feel free to download our app and explore it a little bit and try to understand how patients, you know, if you want to access care through Betty's, we're serving women in Texas. We can um, serve any woman or female in the state of Texas, whether you're here, you know, for a visit or for um, school, or if you have a permanent residence here. And then of course, in person, we're in the greater San Antonio area as far as uh, San Marcos, which is pretty close to Austin. So yeah, that's how you can get in touch with us. 
Amazing. Thanks so much, Jennifer. This was such a great conversation. Thank you for sharing the mission and story of Betty's and, and your personal story as well. I think a lot of people are, are frankly going to be very energized by this conversation with companies like Betty's kind of moving the needle. Women's healthcare is moving in a very positive direction. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast.